This is Peter Holmstrom, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new book, The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, the official companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, which chronicles the history of Star Trek from the early days of Lucille Ball and Desilu all the way to, through the end of Enterprise, featuring new and expanded interviews from Trek legends such as David Gerald, Rick Berman, Ronald D. Moore, Harold Livingston, Walter Koenig, Kate Mulgrew, Nana Visitor, Robert Picardo, Tim Russ, Brandon Braga, Lisa Klink, and of course, in Glorious Trekspert's own, Mark A. Altman, as well as the final interviews from Kirstie Alley and Leonard Nimoy, in addition to so, so many more. Pick up The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, available today in hardcover and digital wherever books are sold. Welcome to Best TV Never Made, where we look at interesting to infamous television pilots and projects that never made it to your television screen. I'm your host, Peter Helmstrom, and with me as always is the guy who would probably look way too good in a fedora and trench coats, Ryan Matsunaga. <laughs> I don't know where you come from these Ryan? intros, Peter, but uh, I appreciate it. I need that, uh, I need that Sunday bump of, of uh, energy. <laughs> well, the reason I bring up trench coat and fedora is because today we're going to talk about a, uh, a rather high-profile uh, pilot project for an adaptation of L.A. Confidential, which is going to be uh, written and executive produced by Jordan Harper, who is our guest today. Jordan, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, so I guess before we jump into the uh, the pilot itself, Jordan, I'd love to start a little bit with your background because you, you have a really incredibly diverse writing career. I mean, you've been a TV writer, producer, you're a novelist, but I believe before all that, you were a uh, music and film critic. Is that is that the case? Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I started out, well, after a very brief and awful stint in advertising uh, <laughs> as a young man, I, I started working as the music editor at the Riverfront Times, which is the Alt Weekly in St. Louis, Missouri. And so I was a music writer for three or four years, and then I moved to New York City where I was the DVD critic for the Village Voice chain. I also was kind of like the third or fourth string movie critic for, for the Village Voice for a little while. And uh, you know, while I was doing all that, I, I was starting to work on writing short stories. I, I'm originally from the Ozarks, and, and I, I went to the University of Missouri, and I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really know what that meant in a lot of ways. And as I was figuring that out, I was writing short stories. Uh, mostly about crime, and uh, then I moved to Los Angeles where I uh, took one of those short stories, I turned it into a spec script, which is where you write an episode of an existing TV show, and I, I turned this story into a, a spec for The Shield, which was then in its final uh, season. Shield is still, in my opinion, the best TV show of all time, and uh, I used that spec to get into the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop, uh, where they train you to be a TV writer. Um, and my second job interview out of that program was with Bruno Heller, the creator of The Mentalist. Mm. Uh, so I joined that TV show on, on season two. Uh, and that was really my training as a TV writer. I mean, it was, you know, it's a police procedural, a case of the week with like a mechanic on top of you have to do a magic trick to catch the bad guy at the end of the episode. So as, as far as TV writing goes, I don't think there's any better training than doing a show like that. And I, you know, I was there for seasons two through seven, helped create 130 episodes of those, followed Bruno over to Gotham, did a couple seasons over there. Um, and then, yeah, I, I wrote my first novel, She Rides Shotgun, around that time, uh, won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel, which is, in crime fiction, that's, that's, that's a good one. And, uh, 
and yeah, that you know, I've worked on a, most recently High Town, and I have uh, new novels coming out soon. Uh, the one that I'll probably want to talk about more later is Everybody Knows, uh, which comes out in January and and is very much connected to the story we're about to tell. So, I, I'm just I'm just for listeners out there, like he's just he's been hitting it out of the park. It seems like for a very long time, like. <laughs> I'm just hearing you like, oh, I wrote a spec. I won the, the Warner Brothers Fellowship. Like, I, I gave up on applying for that years ago. It's so competitive. I mean, it's uh, it's a pretty remarkable, man. I mean, with it, it's gotten much more competitive. Not to, you know, the year I, I joined, um, a thousand people entered and they picked 12. And the last I heard nowadays, something like seven or 8,000 people apply and they still only pick 12. So. <laughs> It went from like a, a you know point one percent chance of getting in to a I can't do that math percent chance of getting in. So uh, uh, between the Mentalist, Gotham, Hightown, and obviously uh, uh, LA Confidential, your work really seems to be gravitating around uh, uh, crime fiction. Is is there something about that genre that uh, that draws you in? Is that just kind of the trajectory of your career, or is it uh, a real point of interest for you? No, it, it's it's a real point of interest. It's my real passion. And I think, you know, I like very human emotions locked in sort of a candy-coated shell of, of real stakes. Uh, I, You know, a line that I, I say sometimes is people enjoy superhero fiction to imagine what it's like to defy the laws of gravity and fly. And uh, I think crime fiction is, is a way for you to defy the laws of morality and the laws of safety and security mm-hmm. and live in this world where danger is very real and, and active and, and your threats are something you can, you can see in the real world as opposed to kind of the everyday anxieties that we kind of have to battle in our quotidian life. So that to me has always been something I've just been very interested in from my early days in the Ozarks with a, a grandfather who was a prison guard who kind of taught me a lot of my ideas of what masculinity and, and things like that are. And uh, yeah, I have a, a bunch of his knives that he made over in the corner over there. And he uh, say made? would tell me stories about, what's that? Did you say made, like made the knives? Yeah, 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 he made like bone handled knives. I mean, he was from the Ozarks. He was a real, like he gave me chewing tobacco at a rodeo when I was seven years old. Um, and he would tell me stories about Bonnie and Clyde and how they had come through his hometown. And he would tell me stories about my great granduncle, who was a police officer who was killed in the line of duty in a shootout in my hometown. Uh, two brothers killed seven cops. And uh, it was the largest loss of law enforcement life in U.S. history until 9-11. It was called the Young Brothers Massacre. And uh, so we would always have these these pulp novels. Well, not novels because they were nonfiction uh, that were written in the 30s. That was a description of this shootout. And I look at that little booklet now and I go, oh, this is like the seeds of me. It's very pulpy. It's very bloody. And it, it's these stories of crime and life and death. And I so, yeah, for me, you know, I've written some supernatural things, some kind of like uh, horror projects. But 95 percent of what I write is in the crime genre for sure. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, let's um, transition over to a, a bit of a discussion about um, LA Confidential then. Um, before we get into it, though, I wanted to give a bit of a rundown for listeners about the the project and about the, the book and the origins of the story. And um, So LA Confidential began as a neo-noir novel written by James Elroy, first published in 1990. Um, stories about several Los Angeles Police Department officers in the early 1950s who become embroiled in a mix of sex, corruption, and murder following a massacre at the Night Owl coffee shop. 
Um, the story eventually encompasses organized crime, political corruption, heroin trafficking, pornography, prostitution, and Hollywood. Um, a film adaptation starring Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe, and a dozen other recognizable faces was released uh, September 19th, 1997, and went on to earn $126 million against a uh, $35 million budget. And was kind of the favorite that year at the Academy Awards with um, nine nominations and uh, two wins. Um, despite its success, there was no immediate talks of a sequel. Um, sequels weren't particularly big in the 90s, and uh, especially for dramas of this sort. Um, however, in 1999, a pilot was shot starring Kiefer Sutherland and Melissa George. Um, this was originally intended to be a miniseries for HBO, uh, but talks eventually broke down, and eventually Fox funded the pilot to be shot. Um, but the show was never aired, and eventually the pilot would be released on DVD, um, along with the uh, t- uh, uh, DVD special edition DVD release of uh, LA Confidential, the film. And then we jump ahead to um, September 6, 2017, where Variety reports that CBS, New Regency, and Lionsgate would be developing a new TV adaptation of L.A. Confidential. Um, then in February 2018, it was reported that Walter Goggins, fresh off of his uh, critically acclaimed run on Justified, was cast, and uh, Brian Smith was also cast, and Sarah Jones around that same time. Um, other cast members uh, would include Tony Curran, Mark Weber, and uh, Shay Winham. Uh, just coming off of his big success uh, on Boardwalk Empire. Um, and that kind of encompasses the official word on the subject, but uh, along with that report came the word that you had been hired as the writer and executive producer on it. But obviously this is the official report. Um, where did your story fir- begin with the project, first First, begin with the project? I, I remember, well, first of all, James Elroy is my uh, favorite author and has been for a long time to the point that my dog is, is literally named Elroy. <laughs> and... <laughs> So I remember my, my agent uh, at the time, Dan Ehrlich at UTA, uh, gave me a call. I was, I was picking up sushi uh, in Silver Lake, and, and he called me, and I answered, and he's like, hey, would you be interested in adapting LA Confidential? Uh, and the, you know he was joking, because he knew perfectly well <laughs> that I very much wanted to, and he explained to me that New Regency was, was looking to adapt it again, and that uh, they were reading people and they had read a pilot that I had written uh, called Surf City Hardcore, which was an 80s cop show set in Huntington Beach, California that I had written uh, that was sort of a surf noir uh, set in the 80s that was still very clearly uh, in debt to James Elroy and his work. Uh, desperately wish I could have gotten that on the air too. But um, Surf noir uh, being the and, two coolest words you could possibly put together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. There still hasn't been enough surf noir, especially on television. But um, except that, uh, what was it? Baywatch spinoff, wasn't there? Uh, <laughs> you mean Baywatch Nights? Yes, I do. Mean that. That's right. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no worries. So I, uh, so obviously, I said yes. I would very much like to to have this meeting, and I got called in, and I met with a man named Kevin Plunkett, who at the time was at New Regency, was developing this project, and I sat down with Kevin and. Um, we got along fantastically, and I was able to pull out a picture of my dog Elroy and explain that, you know, you were maybe going to find uh, other TV writers who were fans of LA Confidential. You probably weren't going to find anybody else who named their dog after James Elroy. And I explained, and none of this was a lie, that I had probably read the novel LA Confidential twenty or twenty-five times. It's a, to me, it's a seminal novel. It's one of, if it's not Elroy's best, it's the second best, and which means it's one of the one or two great. American novels of crime fiction, in my opinion. They're just, uh, Elroy's 
you know, portrait of America and how American power operates to me is just, it's, it's, you know, he doesn't have any rivals in that regard. And, uh, you know, I love the complications of his characters and the brutality of his violence and, and the beauty of the language. It's a brutal beauty, but it's still beautiful. Um, So anyway, I said things like that to Kevin and he, uh, and I explained to him how I would do a TV show like LA Confidential and I managed to talk Kevin into to letting me do it. And so he and I worked up a pitch and we, you know, we took it everywhere, to be clear. Um, you know, a lot of people when we did this said, well, CBS, that doesn't seem like the right home. And, you know, I'd never actually heard what you just, I'd never heard before that Kiefer Sutherland's version was originally made for HBO and then wound up on Fox. Yeah. Um, which is very interesting to me because, you know, our, our first choice would have been to try and set it with a place where you could have the language and the violence and, and the sex that uh, Elroy's work kind of demands. You know, it, it's, not to jump too far ahead, at the end of the day, I like what we were able to do in a CBS world. But, you know, um, but, you know, we just couldn't we took it. We pitched it everywhere. Everybody heard the pitch. And, you know, uh I, I did my best. I thought I had a good pitch, but we, we couldn't sell it to anybody. I think nowadays the 1950s seem very far away for people and and period pieces make people nervous. And I think rightly so, people are very nervous about cop shows. You know, we were just entering into the era where people are really reexamining what cop shows are, which I am all in favor of. I think that sometimes executives can't uh, they can't be subtle about it. You can't make the argument that LA Confidential is actually the perfect project for a time like now when we can examine what policing is and, and where it goes wrong and, and, and the problems with it. You know, they they just go, oh, you know. Anyway, the point is we, we couldn't sell it to, to any of the, any of the, you know, streamers or, or cable places. And CBS wanted to hear it. And I, I told everyone involved uh, Lionsgate and, and New Regency I was I will I will pitch to CBS but I will do the same pitch that I did for everyone else and that's what I did and and they bought it they were you know excited and we had executives there who, who saw it as a way of like you know um, bringing a new audience into CBS and, and so we gave it a they, they greenlit it and, and so um, yeah, that that kind of brings us to to that point, I guess. Now, now the I mean, the official report says that it was intended for CBS, the network. I'm I'm curious when you were pitching it, was the idea more like this might go to CBS All Access, which at the time was their attempt to do more of an HBO style uh, streaming network, or was it always like this is for CBS specifically? Well, you know, I I that was always seen as a possibility but like our first goal was to to make the best pilot we could make and and, sure. and you know you very rarely want to intentionally miss any target because um hollywood is tough enough as it is without intentionally failing to do something so yeah. you know my position was like i said i'm a huge james elroy fan um, my literary agent for my novels nat sobel was elroy's agent throughout you know, the golden era of, of Elroy's career. Wow. And so I, not that he's not still making great work, but I'm talking about LA Confidential, White sure. Jazz, American sure. Tabloid. Um, and while I always figured, and we could talk about this more later, that Elroy wouldn't like what I was doing, I just wanted to make sure that Nat was proud of what I was doing. And so as long as I could do that on CBS, I was, I was totally willing to do it on CBS. I mean, I worked on The Mentalist for six years, um, 
that was on CBS. So I, I sure. it, it's not like I think I'm too good for it. I just, you know, you, you have to also, you know, I think nowadays we all talk about network TV, like it's something lesser than streaming or cable, but you know, until this good TV existed before the Sopranos, you know, um, Twilight Zone, Twin Peaks, NYPD Blue, Miami Vice, like uh, ER, I mean, you know, all the comedies, all, you know, the, TV is a fantastic medium and it was through network TV for the majority of its of its time there. So we were totally open for doing it for CBS. And, and for me, the important thing was I, I did the pitch that I did and I never lied to them about what the content was. And so we didn't surprise them with something that was morally complex and violent and, and things like that. We gave them what we told them we were going to give them. So, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, the reason I, I asked was I was thinking timing-wise, like around that time, CBS All Access had also like greenlit a, a number of other period pieces that, you know, we're talking, um, what was it called? Strange Angel, wasn't it? With the mm -hmm. Oppenheimer story and then um, the Project Blue Book uh, series. So I was just curious if there was some like, you know, regime or element there that was like period pieces. That's the way to go. Uh, it, <laughs> if anything, and this is me speculating, this isn't me having knowledge. If anything that hurt us because well we already have a period piece set in Los Angeles right. you know um, and so again I don't know that but I, oftentimes that's the kind of logic that gets used is if we have one show set in the you know mid 20th century uh, in Los Angeles we don't need another one right, right. for sure in, in terms of that uh, that pitch process obviously that's but such an iconic piece of source material that uh, in particular one that has been adapted already before. Can, can I ask a little bit how you approach that in terms of what elements from the novel you chose to focus on, what elements you chose to reimagine? I guess, what was that uh, was that pitching process like for you? Well, you know, those are, uh, the pitching process, we actually cribbed a lot from what Curtis Hansen did, um, which is if you watch the movie LA Confidential, which to me what uh, Curtis Hansen and Brian Hegland did in that movie, Brian Hegland uh, being the screenwriter, Curtis Hansen's the director. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest book-to-film adaptations of all time. Uh, and what they did was they left 90% of the book on the cutting room floor, and they were correct to do so. They're, you know, It's a mammoth book, and it is a, a very, very complex novel that actually spans years. There are two separate serial killers um, in that novel, and neither one of them appear in the movie. Um, but for the pitching process, if you remember the opening of L.A. Confidential, the movie is a, uh, a bunch of photographs that are being kind of placed on the screen to kind of give you the bright side and the dark side of L.A. You'll see like bathing beauties and suburban lawns and then you see murder scenes. Well, those are literally the pictures that Curtis Hansen used in his pitch uh, when he went out and pitched the movie L.A. Confidential. Um, so we, we didn't crib the pictures, but we cribbed the idea. We put together our own slideshow. And so when we went out and pitched this, uh, Kevin Plunkett would, would work a slideshow with his laptop while I talked. And, you know, we would try and hit that idea that there was so much of this amazing novel still on the, still on the table. And that, you know, they had done this beautiful job of leaving out what they had to leave out, but we could play around with as much as we wanted and we could use all of these storylines and that, you know, we needed to basically, um, the novel LA Confidential is a very thick rope of story. And what I proposed to do was unravel that rope and, and make much thinner ropes end to end so we could do five seasons, each season having a self-contained mystery 
that we would solve that season that when you looked at all of them together would be the story of LA Confidential kind of woven together but in a longer form with major like revelations at the end of every season so that we're not you know a mystery novel like LA Confidential the last 50 pages are just explanations of what happened um, and you can't have like the last season of your TV show just be explanations so you want to titrate those those mysteries out and that was that was a big part of my pitch was I wanted every episode to feel like its own standalone story but in a connected serialized story that when you added them all together you would have a season that was a mystery and then when you added all the seasons together you'd have one mystery that was the novel LA Confidential more or less you know wow that's awesome you know I'm always curious about like some of the the brass tacks like like financial stuff for period pieces like especially now you know we look back at the movie I, I rewatched it a few days ago and like it occurred to me now that I've been in LA like a lot of their locations probably were still purposefully d- picked because they kind of reminisced were reminiscent of like 1950s LA but now we're here we are at 20, 20 you know this would have been 2018 when it was shot um LA is very, very different, looks very different, right? Like financially speaking, like just like what, what was some of the, the thought process behind uh, uh, the, the, the look, the feel of the show? Like was, was the feeling of like, well, we can't have too many exterior shots because we, 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 you know, or things like that. Well, you know, there's, there's two answers to that question because what you can do in a pilot is very different than what you can do in a series because a, a pilot, you're kind of allowed to spend a lot more money than you'll ever be allowed to spend in any individual episode later on. So we didn't have to, I mean, you know, there was a lot of push and pull over the budget while we were filming, which is the way it is with any, any you know, uh, film or movie or TV show. Um, but we were able to do things in the, you know, we were, there's a lot of CGI in the pilot and it's not the kind of CGI people notice, but it was things like repainting all the street, uh, lines on the street so you could put in cable car tracks because LA had cable cars back then. And, you know, it was blotting out, um, you know, billboards and things like that. And, and it was very subtle, but it was constant. And you're correct to say that LA doesn't have as much of that stuff in it anymore. It's pretty tough. And we hit you know, a lot of the big iconic things. But, um, you know, in series, what we were going to have to do was probably film a lot of the series not in Los Angeles, which when we started seemed like blasphemy to me. And then we went out to Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, which actually has more storefronts and things like that that could pass for the 50s than Los Angeles does anymore. And we would have still come back and done you know, you do a scene at the observatory or, or what have you, um, you know, at the Formosa Cafe or, or things like that. But, um, yeah, it was it was going to be tough. And we had built, you know, a, 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 a standing set for the cop station, which you always do in a cop show. You got to have that, like, standing set that you can go to. But, um, you know, yeah, no, look, the, the and that is when I say, like, people are scared of period pieces. That's one of the major reasons is that for every decade in time you go backwards, you're adding more and more to the budget, you know? Yeah, yeah, so true. Well, jumping ahead here, but uh, I just got to say the uh, the pilot looked incredible. Like, it, um, the the authentic, just oozed authenticity. It's, it's one of those things where I'm not an expert in the era, so I couldn't tell you with any confidence that's what the 50s looked like, but... Watching it, I was very confident that's what the 50s looked like. And it was a very authentic feeling. Well, yeah, and I have to give, you know, that that part of it has very little to do with me and a whole lot to do with Michael Denner, who was the director for the for the pilot. And 
Uh, he had, you know, he has a, a great resume in television and, uh, you know, for this project, the thing that was most interesting to me was that he was a director and executive producer on Justified. Mm. So he knew how to do crime drama at that, that, that level. Um, so, you know, a lot of that was his decision um, and, and the things that he did, like he brought in uh, uh, Bojan Bazelli, who was a cinematographer who had never done television before. He had, uh, you know, shot movies like uh, King of New York with Abel uh, Ferreira. Abel Ferreira. Um, and, uh, you know, we brought in Ruth Myers, who was the costume designer for the movie to do the costumes. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, but yeah, uh, you know, that the look of the pilot was 100% Michael Denner. Uh, I had a, a different idea that um, I pushed for for about five seconds and then let, let Denner do what he's supposed to do because <laughs> that's his job and he's much better at, at the visual stuff than I am. But I agree that it's. I just happened to rewatch it, uh, you know, right before you guys even approached me to do this, and um, it looks gorgeous. It really does. It really does. Yeah. It's um, it's fantastic, and I, I got to say, the casting is just spot on too. Like, like talk a bit about that. Like, what was the process like? Because not only are you looking for people who can perform the role, but you're also looking for people who can look natural in a 1950s aesthetic, right? Well, no, and you're right. You know, uh, I'm a big believer in mugs. I'm a big believer in interesting faces. And um, and so even the background and a lot of the extras, I would always push for who has the most interesting face. But as far as the lead cast goes, again, I have to credit Michael Denner because um, what he did, because we were doing a CBS show, but we want to approach talent that might not immediately think that they wanted to sign on for a seven-year CBS show. And he sent the pilot to Walton, uh, Walton Goggins, uh, because they had done Justified together. And sure. uh, I met with Walton, which I was thrilled to do because, like I said, The Shield is my favorite TV show of all time. So the idea of doing something with Walton, uh, whose character Shane Vendrell on The Shield is my favorite character on that show, um, I, I was ecstatic to do. And we sat down with him and he asked us, are we really going to be able to do what you've written um, for for this show? And I said, well, this is they have read this script. We're going to do it. And... Uh, Getting Walton to sign on, I think, was was a very, very large domino for us that we were able to knock over. Because once you have somebody of that caliber and that talent level signing on, it, it makes getting other really, really great people like, um, you know, Sarah Jones, Shea Wiggum, Brian J. Smith, Mark Weber, Tony Curran, all of these amazing actors. Uh, you know, I think seeing that Walton was willing to put a stamp on it first had a lot to do with it. And I know, I think you said they announced all of them at once, but it was Walton was the first one to come aboard, and I think it was a uh, a tremendous gift for us. Okay, gotcha. So that's kind of the like as as you just said, it, it, they announced it all at once. But like, how long was the the kind of writing and pre production process for you leading up to the filming? Oh. <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. And I, I, you know, it all blurs together for me at the end. You know, I, the entire process from me meeting Kevin Plunkett to uh, selling to CBS to bringing on Anna Fricky, who was the uh, co-showrunner with me and she was going to be the other executive producer. And then getting it to filming, that was a year and a half from from first meeting of Kevin to, to sale, I think. Gotcha. Um yeah. You know, the great thing about network television as opposed to streaming or cable is they are on a pretty tight schedule on network right. TV. They, you know, they put out their new shows every fall and, and they have a, a, a schedule to it. And so once the train starts running, the train starts running pretty fast. 
Um, so I think, you know, once, once Anna was aboard and, and dinner was aboard, it started going like, now you're talking about months, you know, it's, right. it's a, it's a space of months and, uh, and your life just gets completely consumed by this project. But, uh, yeah, the, um, the, the, as we talked about, the pilot itself is fantastic. The draft that's, uh, floating around online is, um, as the, is the third draft. Was that kind of the, the, the final draft before shooting or were there multiple more drafts after that? Wow. I, you know what? I have to be honest. I, I, I mean, there are, there are multiple, multiple drafts. I'm not really <laughs> sure which one the third draft is, but you know, um, I'm sure that it is longer than what made it to the air um, because uh, you know a lot of a lot of the pre prep was cutting things out and trying to get something that was manageable. We still came in really long even after filming. Uh, the fil- the original cut of the pilot was seven minutes longer than than uh, you know the oh, wow. the the cut that exists now. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of little tweaks. But I think probably by the third draft. Um, that would have been labeled as such, which for me means I did many drafts between all of those, you know, officially labeled drafts. Um, it was probably pretty solid. I, like I said, I, I try very hard to, to work this stuff out in advance. So the the story of the pilot more or less is exactly what I pitched when I sold the show. Um, I tend to, with this kind of stuff, work in a very complex mechanical way of, of you know, when you build this kind of story, uh, where all the characters are interacting and they're all chasing the same thing, but they're going in different directions and all that. You kind of build a thing that you have to become very protective of because if you pull out one piece of it, the whole thing will fall apart. Um, and, and so I think by the time we got to it, like a real finished draft of the pilot, the, the plot itself was fairly well locked at that point. Okay. And you mentioned earlier um, you had sort of a, a five-season um storyline planned out uh did you have most of that in your head by the time the the pilot was done or did you kind of have um a looser idea of where it might go after that first season i mean i had the first season pretty well i mean broken it in the rough draft you know i didn't know what every single individual episode was but i knew where it was going to end um you know shay wiggum who plays dick stensland in in the tv show was going to be killed at the end of the first season we were going to catch the Dr. Frankenstein killer and then uh, we were going to yeah go out on the Night Owl Massacre was going to be the season one out uh, which would involve Dick Sinsland's murder and by that time you know then we can start really telling the story that was more familiar to the audience of LA Mm -hmm. Confidential because you know as you probably noticed in the pilot the actual story of the pilot is not in the book uh, LA Confidential uh, it's actually a transformation of, of a passage of the book because in the in the novel there's a backstory to Ed Exley who's played by uh, Brian J. Smith um, where his character in the novel was in World War II in the Pacific and he was on Guadalcanal and he was terrified and he came across a group of uh, Japanese soldiers who had killed themselves and he made the decision to stage it like he uh, he grabs a flamethrower and he, he roasts all the bodies and oh, wow. he um, makes it look like he's a war hero mm-hmm. and I thought that was such a great introduction to his character mm-hmm. but obviously we're not going to be able to go and film a, a World War II thing so I decided to to write a pilot where we could act that same storyline out in Los Angeles which is mm-hmm. uh, the story of the pilot for, for the listeners is that a, a, a man kills a police officer and 
everybody is, is running after him, trying to find him, and Ed actually gets there first, but the man has just overdosed on heroin, and he makes the decision to shoot the corpse and make it look like they had a shootout, and now he's the hero who gunned down a cop killer. Uh, which, again, it serves that same purpose of showing that this man who says he's there for absolute justice is actually um, a hypocrite who is right. who yeah. is interested in justice but he's more interested in self-advancement and mm-hmm. and 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 you know pleasing his father so yeah that's yeah, really fascinating was, it, i i think particularly with the decision to kind of make season one a lead up to the story that that the fans of the film and the people familiar with the source material would have been expecting was that uh, did that come kind of naturally and organically as the story was being charted out or was that a conscious decision like hey let's Let's shake things up a bit and, and make sure that the, the story doesn't feel too familiar. Well, I mean, that was a lot of it. A lot of it was the the, the knowledge that the, the entire storyline of Bloody Christmas, which is what opens up the movie and opens up the novel, uh, to tell that would have taken up the entire pilot. It's mm. um, And so now you would just have a pilot that would feel very familiar to anybody who had seen the film. And, and also it, it just didn't lead story-wise in the directions I needed it to lead to. I needed to have connections in a way that the, you know, the audience would immediately be invested in the ongoing mystery, not just the characters. If, it seems counterintuitive, but like because television stretches out over so many years, you kind of have to do things quicker mm-hmm. because people don't, you know, what holding off a twist till halfway through a book or halfway through a movie you can do that, but to hold off a twist till halfway through a TV show, you're talking two and a half years, by which time the audience will see your twists coming, promise you. So it's best not to bet on things like that. And so I thought, you know, again, we were telling the Dr. Frankenstein story in season one, and that was familiar not to moviegoers, but to, to the novel readers. And the stolen heroine would have been traced through the first season, and that's sort of in the movie, in the books. And then... I felt like, you know, if we had everybody and could get them all the way to, to the night owl and then go out on that, mm-hmm. I thought we would really have something where we could, that would give us momentum to get through the next five years. Wow. That's so interesting. I'm curious though, too, like talking about, um, you know, the elements of adaptation, but also like, what were those elements that you really wanted to inject your own sort of like, um, um, you know, the, the, the tangents from the novel, the stuff that you wanted to explore that was um, um, origi- more original ideas? like. Talk a bit about that. About about my original ideas that I wanted to put in, or yeah, like you know, I mean, I'll, uh, you know, for for maybe for those who haven't read the novel, like you know, like like myself, um, the uh, <laughs> the uh, you know, compared to the movie, the Sarah Jones character and kind of this aspiring actress who's on her way up and, and dealing with like sexual harassment at the at the, at the workplace, things like that. It's like uh, not present in the movie. Um, and she's fantastic in the in the pilot. I mean, it's 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 a really great performance. And um, you know, these elements that uh, you know you're, that you're bringing to that you're bringing to the to the pilot yourself. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of those decisions were again made with the idea that TV shows are 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 long in a way that mm-hmm. movies or even very long novels aren't. And so the book L.A. Confidential. Um, you know, Lynn Bracken is a fairly static character, both in the movie and, and in the book, compared to the to the to the really wide arcs that you see these other characters go on. So I needed to have her be in a, a different place. And so I was like, instead of starting her as this high priced call girl, uh, why not see how she makes that decision? Watch her go down that road. And that way we have more 
more places to go with her over the next five years, you know, um, much the same way in, in the movie and in the, the, the novel, Ed Exley and Bud White hate each other uh, from the j- jump. They just loathe each other. They, they never get along. And again, in a five-year series, you want to have more ups and downs than that. And so I start them with like a grudging res- respect in this pilot that is not in uh, any of the other material. And again, that was that was done mostly just to give us places to go to like bring them together, push them apart. You need that. That's a very kind of, um, I hate to use this word, but it's, it's just accurate, a very soap uh, way of thinking. Sure. But, you know... Um, on a long enough timeline, all serialized TV becomes a soap opera. And and so you have to at least be aware of those elements and, and play with them. And and so a lot of those decisions were like that. You know, to be honest, and this is a little touchy, but uh, when I conceived of the entire casting couch scene, there is a casting couch scene with Sarah Jones where she is assaulted by a, a movie producer but fights back and burns him with a cigarette and gets away. Um, I conceived of all of that pre-Me Too. Um, mm, sure. And then I took, I found myself taking it out and pitching it as Me Too was starting and building as a moment, and Harvey Weinstein's name was going everywhere. Um, and part of me wanted to pull it because of that, because I wasn't trying to be so on the nose and sure. and talking about making it feel like, oh, we're just doing this show to talk about right now. I, I'd always argued that. LA Confidential can speak to our current moment because it's so honest about America and Absolutely. and it's so you know but I didn't want to feel like we were injecting something from you know modern day headlines into the show I'm glad we didn't pull it because I think it's important I mean it does it does lead to a question I was, I was going to ask though because it's the pilot is shot um, it's amazing it was it was finished it wasn't just like shot and then as some pilots are you know dailies come back and everyone's like I don't know and then you know it it kind of stops there but this pilot was finished it was music was added post was done um, and then it, it ultimately doesn't get picked up I, I wonder if, if you, we could talk a bit about that that sort of final legs of, of the pilot well yeah you know this was this was tough because we everybody involved knew that we were making something good like I, I have been around when things are being made that aren't and and you know when you're making something that's good and, and special and we all felt that way and the the people at CBS Studios and at Lionsgate and at the CBS Network who we were having our contact with are the people who championed us at those networks they knew we were doing something good and 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 something that deserved to be on the air and so we all thought it was going to happen. I mean, we really did because we um, we just could tell we were making. Now, look, it's Hollywood. Everybody knows that um, it's not it's not a meritocracy at the end of the day in a lot of ways. But like we, everybody really felt very strongly that we were doing something special and that that this was going to happen. And uh, at the you know, basically, it just two things. You know, we did a, a test screening. Uh, where, you know, they literally, if you don't know this, when they do test audiences, they pull them off the street in Las Vegas under the theory that, well, everybody in America goes to Las Vegas. So you're really <laughs> getting a cross-cultural, you know, glimpse at the real America because sure. <laughs> people in Hollywood have a, a certain sense of self-loathing uh, where they have bought into the idea that they themselves are not real Americans, whatever that means. <laughs> and so they have to go out and, and find some and show it to them. And I'm not exaggerating when I say at least one of the participants, because they make you sit there and watch 
while these people watch your show and, and then talk about it. And at least one of the participants was openly drunk. And, um, you know, that was, I think, the first, like, little warning sign for me that maybe this wasn't going to work. Because, right. I mean, you know, the pilot is very dense. It's very fast-paced. It doesn't, you know, I don't think it's really hard to follow, but it's it, it, it requires you to not be looking at your phone, I think, while you're, while you're watching it. And it maybe wasn't the TV show for people who were just plucked off the street at Las Vegas um, who were really looking to get back to, to gambling. And look, by the way, I go to Las Vegas. I'm just saying, like, it's not actually, a, 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 it's not a good sampling of America, I don't think. But um, <laughs> Not to besmirch the process at all, but I'm pretty sure I've walked past there and it is across and below a bar. So like, there's like, <laughs> maybe not the best locale for uh, a heady kind of intellectual crime drama. <laughs> well, and, and you know, again, I really there's a whole thing that happens in Hollywood where where people they don't trust their own instincts and and they're a little embarrassed. They think they're a feat or elitist or something, and they and they've so cut off the part of themselves that just enjoys watching things that they don't trust themselves to look at a thing and say, "I like this. I think this is good. We should put it on the air." And and so if it's not a test screening, it, they create. They make up a person in their mind. They they just like a tulpa, if you know what a tulpa is. They like they create a tulpa and then they try and make television shows for that tulpa. Mm. And and I to me that's insane because I just we should have you know you should make sure that your executive base is very diverse in a lot of different ways, and then you should have that interesting you know excited diverse group of executives make TV shows they want to watch. And if you do that, I think the real, you know, passion will shine through and good TV will get on the air. But instead, we do this. And I don't think that this is um, the, the better solution. So, you know, and again, so we, we did all this and, and, you know, through all this, Anna Fricky was, was such a, a wonderful person to have through this because she had been through a process like this before. And Kevin Plunkett was great, and I, you know, I, I still work with Kevin today on projects. Um, we've taken out multiple things since then. Uh, he's just a great executive, and and Michael Denner was great, and, and everybody around us was so great and so positive, including our. We had champions at CBS who thought this was, you know, a great project and was going to help change the network, and then it eventually floated up to a a level of brass who we had never interacted with who watched it and you know, accurately said, this is not a CBS TV show. Mm. Um, when you, you know, I think the idea being from the other executives that you're correct, this is not a CBS TV show. This is something that is a police procedural, but it's interesting and morally challenging and might bring in a new audience. And uh, the people at the very top uh, disagreed at the end of the day and, and they passed on it. And, uh, and there's really, up until the day they passed, everybody thought we were getting a green light. So that was a, it was a real whiplash event. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, I mean, that is so rough and it's always, it's just the worst of these stories when it's just, you're so close, you know, and you can taste it and then it just gets pulled away completely. Um, was there ever talk about shopping it around or at that point did CBS basically kind of, you know, have the final say on, on the, on the pilot? No, uh, we, we did shop it around. We, we showed it to a lot of places. I think that we ended up making something that was neither fish nor fowl. Uh, to be totally honest, I mean, again, I, I'm very proud of this pilot. I think that we made something that 
was too, you know, uh, morally complex and complicated for a certain type of, of network audience, um, but still felt like a network TV show when you showed it to somebody at a streamer. You know, we didn't have swears. We didn't have nudity. You know, we had a lot of alt takes. I, I made sure that, like, particularly Shay Wiggum, who's really good at swearing, um, we made sure that we did some, some alt takes of him using, like, the, the classic Elroy shitbird, things like that, you know. And, and again, we, you know, we just, uh, we had, yeah, I don't know. It just, we, we, we weren't able to sell it at the end of the day. And I, I've had a lot of very kind words about it. It's been very, you know, great to a lot of people in Hollywood have seen it and they know how good it is and and that's that's very gratifying not as gratifying as having a a TV show but like still pretty good you know that's uh crazy to me here to hear that it felt too sanitized for the the streamers because there's some gnarly stuff in here it's uh particularly on the violence and with the uh the Frankenstein killer those are some some potent imagery in there You know, it's funny because when you talk about the censorship or whatever you want to call it of network television, uh, graphic violence is not a part of that. If you've watched Hannibal, um, the level of violence on Hannibal, I did a I did an episode of Gotham one time where where I had written in the script that a guy gets his his arm sawed off by a knife, and you know I thought when we were going to shoot it that you're going to do the classic like see the knife, see the arm, and then see his face while he screams, you know? And then they brought in a fully pressurized fake arm. And when I say fully pressurized, (laughs) the blood inside the arm had been pressurized so that when you cut into it with a knife, the blood would spurt. And I'm like, I I was on set and I was like, okay guys, but like, we're never getting this on the air, but let's shoot it. You made it. Like, let's do the close up of the knife sawing into the arm and they did it and we shot. I'm like, that was insane. That's not going on the air. Uh, And it totally went on the air. Oh Um, God. So, like, violence isn't really a thing. Uh, it's it's really more, it's the language. And with some network TV, it's, it's just a basic attitude mm-hmm. of, like, um, and particularly, you know, um, you know, my politics are, 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 are very much that we need to look at policing and, and, and defund the police and, and, and really work at other systems, um, you know, and, and the prevailing idea of cop shows is very opposite of that it is you know i would get notes sometimes from from people where they'd be like oh the cops aren't being good in this scene he's not being a good cop and i would say yes you're you're correct (laughs) you mean when they're when they're uh, dealing heroin and killing people and uh (laughs) they're not being good cops there they're not not. um (laughs) i really have to shout out um uh, tony curran because i think uh tony curran who plays dudley smith in this uh, had, a, had a very tough role because Dudley Smith in the original L.A. Confidential is such an iconic character and villain. And I think Tony uh, really pulls it off. I think he's a tremendous villain. Um, yeah. And he had as his, his sidekicks, Bruning and Carlisle, my, my friend Drew Powell and, uh, and uh, Charles Barker, who is... Um, Skinny Pete from Breaking Bad as were his two sidekicks, uh, which was a classic, you know, big guy, small guy team up that I really was sorry we weren't able to get on camera more. Um, I think they would have become really great uh, villains in their own right. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's hard to say what went wrong because I wasn't in any of the rooms. You know, people give you reasons for why they pass on things. And sometimes those are probably the reasons why and sometimes they're not. You, You learn to just take a no as a no 
at the end of the day and just keep going because Hollywood, even for the most successful careers, is still going to be 80% no's. And, and so you just can't, you can't dwell on them at the end of the day. You just have to go, okay, thank you, and, uh, and keep going. Sure. Yeah. Well, we're approaching the, the end of our hour here. Um, Ryan, do you got any final questions on uh, LA Confidential? Uh, I'll say one more bl- very blue sky question, but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big horror guy. And this pilot, I feel like it's, it's not horror, but between like the mass killers in the beginning, the Frankenstein killer, there are some very heavy horror elements. Have you ever considered just doing a, a horror project? Is that something that's ever been on your radar? Or are you like, I'm a crime guy? No, I, it's funny you say that. I just took out um, a, a pilot, a spec pilot that I wrote called uh, Holy Mountain, California, which was my version of a supernatural show. It was um, uh, my, my bad Hollywood logline for it would be it was um, Ozark meets the X-Files. And mm-hmm. it was um, set in the high desert of Southern California. And it was, uh, I mean, to just get to the heart of it, it was about a drug that was also an alien. So each individual mm-hmm. dose of this drug was actually a connected singular consciousness in a kind of Lovecraftian way. Um, and it was slowly taking over this high desert town. And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to sell it. I just took it out. Um, might try and retool it, might re- try and retool it as a movie because it's something I really liked. But um, right. yeah, I, I, you know, again, horror for me occupies a lot of the same space as crime fiction does. It's just slightly different rules. But I, I would love to get. Um, I, I'm surprised at the lack of, of horror on television. I don't. I think there could be a lot. I think there's a lot of open space. I also, by the way, not to get on my soapbox. I think there's a lot of open space right now for crime fiction on television. I, sure. Um, American uh, audience or not audiences, but American studios right now seem a little squeamish about crime. Um, and to me, it's and I say this as a viewer. I I feel like there are gaps of shows like LA Confidential yeah. uh, on the air right now. And and I look, dead, LA Confidential is dead and gone. I'm not I'm not lobbying for bringing it back. But I I think that there there is a space that needs to be filled. And I would love for if not me for somebody like me to fill it. Um, so there's more of this kind of fun stuff on the air. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, watching the pilot, I was I was it was just so refreshing to watch and i didn't quite realize i had missed it but i was just like right just crime show film noir <laughs> it's like these are things that somehow i i didn't realize had had left and yet they had and and as you say it's like we we do kind of have a bit of a, of a beyond the you know ncis's or whatever nonsense is out there right now <laughs> but it's, but um in terms of quality really high quality um crime shows it's like yeah i missed that and i i, I really would i really wish this had gotten on the air i mean it was it was fantastic and um Thank you. Uh, if I can pivot this into a plug real quick, yeah, I, will, I will say that, you know, um, I do, like I said, I have a new novel called Everybody Knows coming out in January, and uh, it is a pretty direct result of this show not getting on the air because like, I had all of this Elroy energy locked up in me mm-hmm. where I was ready to tell a great big epic twisty L.A. crime story. And since I couldn't do it in L.A. Confidential, I decided I was going to write my own version of this kind of book but set it right now as opposed to setting okay. it in the 50s like Elroy did so everybody knows is is my version of a big epic LA crime story yeah. um but like I said set now and and set in in this world of like um I'm, I'm fascinated with like private security firms and publicists who don't get good stories out they keep the bad stories in mm, and right. dirty lawyers and celebrities and I you know I have all of these scandals and rumors and 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 secrets that get passed around Hollywood that I've, I have fictionalized and put into a book. So, you know, um, 
it's not exactly what I would have done with LA Confidential, obviously, but it, it is, you know, um, uh, something that at least is in that ballpark. And, and I found a way to get it where nobody can say no to it because it's a book. And you, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know. That's fantastic. That's very exciting. Well, thank you. And if if, uh, if fans want to get in touch or, or find your books, do you have a, a website or uh, social media handles you want to? Uh, you know, I should, but I don't. I mean, I, I have a social media handles. I don't have a website right now. I, Jordan underscore Harper on Twitter is is the best place to find me. I have a newsletter called Welcome to the Hammer Party uh, that is very sporadically updated. Um, I should probably update it. I have an, another book coming out <laughs> this month in, in, in the UK only uh, called The Last King of California. Um, very different genre. And, uh, well, it's still crime, but it's, it's like a... Redneck Seven Samurai, basically. Um, Sold. I need oh, to hear more about that. That's that's a <laughs> yes. hell of a long one. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, but no, if if somebody wants to reach out to me, you know, um, yeah, uh, Twitter is the place to find me. Um, you know, my books wherever wherever books are sold, and um, and like I said, uh, she writes shotgun is my Edgar Award winning novel. I have a short story collection called Love and Other Wounds. Um, Last King of California is at Simon & Schuster the UK at the end of this month and then Everybody Knows is with Mulholland in January and uh, I think that one is going to be I, I hope that's, that's going to I think knock some people over Awesome That is fantastic. These all sound amazing I hope uh, fans go pick them up because uh, I'm definitely picking up the Redneck Samurai book for sure. <laughs> that sounds so great <laughs> But they're not Samurai It's just the story of the of, like It's a very uh, Sam Just leave me with my idea of what it's going to be Okay, <laughs> They are Samurai, my man They are Samurai, you are correct <laughs> Um, well, let's wrap things up then, right uh, right there. Um, listeners, thank you all so much for being here. If you enjoy the show, please uh, rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. Uh, Ryan, what are our Twitter handles? We have we have social media. Uh, we are Never Made TV on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I think Twitter is probably going to be our primary platform, but uh, find us anywhere and love if you give us a follow. It's fantastic. And uh, we also want to thank our um, uh, sound engineering team at Electric Entertainment, as well as our producer, Natalie Miscali, and executive producers over there, uh, Mark Altman and Dean Devlin. Um, so until next time, thank you all so much for being here. And um, our broadcast day is now over. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.